you know, if they haven't looked at their phosphorus levels in the soil, or if they're not really paying attention to that or optimizing their applications, you know, it could very well be that phosphorus is, is their limiting nutrient. Welcome to the Canola Watch podcast. I'm Jay Wetter, and our topic today in this, the third of our Canalab themed podcasts, is phosphorus. Speaking at the top was Warren Ward. Warren Ward, uh, agronomy specialist with the Canola Council of Canada. You will also hear from Ray DeBanco. Ray DeBanco, senior agronomist with Agrium. And later, Dan Orchard, Canola Council of Canada agronomy specialist for North Central Alberta. Let's start off with a discussion on how much phosphorus canola really needs. To grow one bushel of canola takes roughly one pound of phosphate uh, to provide the nutrition that canola needs. You know, if you're targeting a high canola yield of, say, 50 bushels an acre, that's 50 pounds of phosphorus that you could be removing from your field. So, um, you know, I don't know too many growers that are actually applying that, that level of phosphorus. So uh, it could be a bit of a red flag for some growers. Certainly, and to Warren's point, uh, if we look at the historical advance, if you will, of canola in the last number of years, certainly since 2005, uh, canola growers in the prairies have consistently been under-applying phosphate. The removal rates uh, for a 45 to 50 bushel canola crop, as Warren said, have been between 50 and 65 pounds of phosphate, and we've significantly been drawing down the phosphate reserves in the prairies of, of Canada in the last number of years. I think uh, a lot of growers know or uh, or have heard or maybe suspect that they're getting the most bang for the for their buck from those first uh, you know 15 to 20 or 25 pounds of phosphorus that they're applying to their field. So uh, in order to to maximize their their economic return, that's that's kind of where a lot of growers have capped their phosphorus applications in the past. When fertilizer prices got high in the mid 2000s. Growers that had been uh, religiously, if you will, applying phosphate fertilizer in the past and building up soil reserves decided to reduce rates of application. If you, as Warren said, look at reduction in rates of application from an economic perspective, coupled with the, the expansion of canola acres in the prairies and the removal rates uh, that go with that, then we've had two factors come together. One, the economic return and the increased removal, and now growers have drawn down significantly the prairie stores of phosphate in their soils and have to go back to, to managing that aspect, as Warren said, for the economic return, and also looking at rebuilding those phosphate levels that they've drawn down, and now would be a good time to be looking at doing that. It would be interesting, I think, for most growers to, to do a balance sheet, a phosphorus balance sheet with their farms. So if they have a few fields where they have a history where they can go back in their in their yields and their phosphorus applications over a number of years and just see what uh, you know what their inputs in of pounds of phosphorus has been versus what they've removed and you know I think a lot of people would be shocked when they when they do that analysis yeah to your point Warren when we were together at the most recent canola lab and we asked for a show of hands in terms of phosphate application rates for the participants during the course of the of the program uh, a lot of participants, the majority, I think, if I remember correctly, were around 25 to 30 pounds of phosphate. Uh, there was a few hands that went up in the 40-45 range, but I think the general acknowledgement from the audience when we talked about uh, the removal versus application uh, relationship, most of them were in agreement that they were under-applying phosphate, and they recognized that they had to find ways to rebuild the phosphate storehouse or find ways to more safely put down 
the phosphate requirements because, as you say, they're not growing 20, 25 bushel canola. Uh, the average is much higher, and, and typically growers are looking to want to grow 50 to 70 bushel canola consistently. Okay, so let's move on to the, the diagnosing a problem. Jeff Shano, I think uh, he invented the term hidden hunger, partly because it's, it can be difficult to diagnose a phosphorus deficiency. But what should a grower look for? Maybe doing that uh, balance sheet, Warren, would be a good hint. But are there things that you can see on the plant that might suggest that the, it's phosphorus? Phosphorus really is a tricky uh, uh, deficiency to diagnose, and in part because of this hidden hunger, as, as you said, Jay. Um, unless you have a healthy plant beside a, a phosphorus-deficient plant, a lot of times it really is difficult to, to, um, to, to know that that's what the problem is. Uh, general symptoms of a phosphorus deficiency could include uh, some stunted, stunting of the plant, so it's generally unthrifty. Um, you know, it's smaller, it's weaker, it's not as branched. Uh, there can be some purpling, but as we know, that can be a sign of, of other things, generally um, just as a, a stress on the canola plant. So um, with, the, with all that, you know, it, visually it is, it can be quite difficult to determine a phosphorus deficiency just looking at visual symptoms. And that's a good point, Warren. You know, typically if a grower were to leave a check strip, and I, I know growers typically do not like to do that, but if they did, they can see the benefit of phosphate. And as you say, the, the, the differences you see are, are very subtle. Uh, typically smaller stunted plants, it, it may look like, well, you seeded a little earlier than you should. It was a little cooler. You seeded a little bit deeper because of seed bounce. Um, all these different things and, and the stress on the plant uh, is manifested later out through the season with, with a reduction in yield. And so they're very, very subtle symptoms. And keep in mind, too, the growing conditions that can also uh, help uh, lead to a phosphorus deficiency, maybe even uh, just a temporary one early on in the growing season. So we know, you know, phosphorus not being mobile in the soil, if we're going into, uh, you know, fairly cool conditions, typically like we might see at the start of seeding, uh, those are the situations or conditions that I would normally uh, suspect there to be more more prone to having a phosphorus deficiency. But it could also happen a little bit later on in the growing season as well. So whether it was, you know, too dry or, or too wet and we had some stunting of the roots, something along those lines, whereas even sometimes there's adequate phosphorus in the soil, but the plant just can't access it for, for some other reason. Because phosphorus is immobile, it moves by diffusion, which is controlled by temperature and moisture, cool, dry or cool, wet conditions may reduce the ability of the plant's root system to be absorptive and take up that phosphorus. So short-term, transitory, if you will, and certainly spatially uh, differences in the field uh, due to the environment can affect phosphorus supply during the growing season. A highlight at Canalab 2017 was the demonstration of canola plants grown in real farm field soil that was short of phosphorus. CCC agronomy specialist and Canalab organizer Dan Orchard provides the backstory. Yeah, you know, uh, it's funny. We we always want to do a fertility station, and, and we usually use hydroponics, and they grow them in the greenhouse, and it's, you know, ideal. Everything is a little bit too too much, <laughs> the deficiencies, and we have trouble mimicking more of a field issue where there's, you know, a slight deficiency, not a complete removal of a nutrient. So... So what happened a couple of years ago was Keith 
That's Dan's CCC colleague, Keith Gobert. Just brought in some soil that he found um, a problem with. He couldn't really figure out what was wrong, so we dug up a lot of soil. And just for fun, we did our own kind of home diagnostic. And, and what I did was just put the soil in tubs and added a, a different nutrient to each tub and started with nutrition. And sure enough, we realized it was phosphate. And so we repeated this a few times and the symptoms were the same. And it was really an eye-opener for me that that this was a phosphate deficiency I wouldn't have diagnosed without doing this, I don't think. And so we ended up growing a bunch of these out and turning in turning our fertility session into a, a phosphate discussion with with these plants that we had. And and uh, so that kind of took a last minute turn and was quite successful. So it was pretty cool. What was it about that soil that Keith was suspicious about? How, how did he get that soil in the first place? He was called by a grower that had an issue and wondered what was wrong. And, and Keith went out and it's really obviously very difficult to figure out what was going on. So he winter was coming and he wanted to figure this out uh, over the winter if we could. So he just dug up a bunch of soil well before it froze. And and uh, I, it's funny because you, you would think, oh, you know, just doing a soil sample or reading a book would, would show you phosphate deficiency enough to diagnose this. But if you don't have a plant to compare it to, they all look the same. They're all very stunted and small leaves and you, you could blame so many things. Um, and like I said, I, I think uh, Keith was determined to figure out what it was and both of us were quite surprised that it that it was phosphate. We, we did a soil test and and it, it wasn't extremely low. I don't remember the number offhand, but it wasn't enough for us to conclude that, that that's what was wrong with the soil was with just the soil samples. How did you tell me again how you concluded that it was phosphorus? What was the process of elimination? Well, so the first tub I just threw in all the nutrients, all the micros, um, everything. And, and then I slowly kind of took away one nutrient at a time and, uh, keeping the others there right so so everything except phosphate everything except nitrogen everything except potash and sulfur and boron and everything and uh, the tray with with everything except phosphate was the only tray that really wasn't growing normally and was incredibly stunted like two weeks behind um, all the other trays that had phosphate in it and and so then from there we just kind of did some more fooling around with fertility because we had lots of soil to play with so every time we did it we you know we would be totally confident that it was phosphate so we just repeated it a bunch of times and and drug those plants across uh, the prairies to to cano labs to show people and that ended up being a pretty popular station it was i think you know i think what was really popular about it was the plants that were actual soil and this was kind of a, a wow moment for us in the lab and it cost nothing for us to do it and um and 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 the fact that you probably wouldn't have figured that out had you not done this experiment was kind of neat for them to see that you know all this kind of stuff we do behind the scenes and and then once in a while um, we're right <laughs> 
We return now to Warren Ward and Ray DeBanco discussing rates and placement of phosphorus fertilizer. We do know that we have uh, safe rates that we can safely apply in the seed row. Um, the challenge is, is that there's uh, some differences between Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Alberta in terms of what those published safe rates are. So anywhere from 15 up to 25 pounds per acre, depending on which province you're in. Um, generally, I guess what, what I like to see is limiting seed place fertilizer as much as possible. Now we know with phosphorus not being mobile in the soil, having some of it placed near that seed, especially in a low uh, uh, phosphorus uh, testing field, you're definitely going to see benefits from that. But again, not wanting to go over those safe rates. And, and also keep in mind too, those safe rates of you know 15 to 25 pounds really is based on ideal growing conditions. And a one inch wide uh, opener on six inch row spacing. And I think we've seen a, a dramatic trend in the last 10 to 15 years to much wider row spacing. And when you do that, you start to concentrate, as Warren said, the fertilizer more so in the row and you increase the potential for toxicity and seed damage. And so those safe rates are based on ideal environmental conditions, but also based on a set set of equipment. So you start to roll the dice by trying to put too much in the seed row. So we have safe rates and then people have to move the addition that they needed, the additional rates that they need to a sideband or potentially a broadcast application. Ray also stressed the importance of striking a balance between lower seeding rates and the risk from higher seed-placed fertilizer rates. In the same sense, if they're reducing your seeding rate and still trying to put dangerously high levels of any phosphate or any fertilizer in the seed row, you start to open up a whole new can of worms where what they were doing before was working just fine and now they've reduced their seeding rate and they're coming up with patchy stands or poor germination and you know it might have saved six or seven dollars an acre on a pound of seed but now instead of having you know seven to eleven plants they've got three to five are they really helping themselves and maybe that reduction in seeding rate should go into new equipment that allows them to sideband those higher rates of phosphate. Something just to think about on, on a sidebar, I guess. That's excellent. And one other, uh, one other comment that we make quite often too is just doing the on-off test. So when you're seeding, just turning the seed place fertilizer off for about 100 feet in the field. Then don't forget to turn it back on again, but uh, go <laughs> back and look at that after emergence and, and do some plant counts and see if there is a difference between you know, where there was zero seed place fertilizer versus the rest of the field, which was, you know, did have the seed place rates. That'll give you a pretty good indication if you're, uh, if you're at, if the rates you're seed placing are actually safe or not. Right. So if you're in a one pass system, you, um, if you're putting down say 20 pounds, just to pick a number in the middle uh, of phosphate, so 40 pounds of MAP, if that's your product of choice, um, you need to put the other if you're going to hit that replacement rate of 50 pounds of phosphate, you need to put at least more than half in that sideband. And um, I'm uh, guessing... you, yep, you could look at putting uh, the remaining requirement if you're set up as the grower for sidebanding. Uh, summon the drill blend to the safe level, as Warren says, and then go with the, the balance in the sideband. The other option is looking at changing of your management, uh, depending upon the crop sequence that you have on your farm. Uh, the cereal phase of the rotation is a lot more amenable to higher rates in the seed row, similar 
rates are up to 50 pounds combined phosphate and potassium or 50 pounds of phosphate by itself for a wheat or a barley crop. So growers can conceivably in that canola year put down what they can, but in the cereal phase of the rotation, put the additional requirements down then uh, when it's safe for their equipment and for that particular crop and build the soil over the course of time in the cereal phase. So they can get those additional rates down safely in the cereal phase and in the succeeding years, take the benefit of that phosphate for their canola crop. That's another way to manage it. Do you guys recall any comments or side conversations with regard to phosphorus from Canalab? Anything that was new to you or um, sort of interesting angles that you perhaps hadn't heard in a while? I don't know about new or interesting angles, but to me, I was very gratified to hear generally from the participants the acknowledgement that they weren't putting on the phosphate that the canola crop was removing. I think the fertility message is getting out from the council to the growers that if they want to grow their 50-52 bushels and higher, they have to pay attention to all nutrients, but certainly they're recognizing that they haven't been paying enough attention to phosphate. Warren mentioned this earlier with the balance sheet. I think nitrogen and sulfur messaging have gotten out quite clearly over the years. Phosphate message got out there, but I think they forgot about it for the comments that Warren made earlier about the economics and the cost of phosphate. And now they're recognizing yet, yes, I've been growing a lot of canola. My yields are much higher. My whole technology package is much better. And I haven't been addressing the phosphate. And that coupled with what they're seeing on their soil test program, rates are dramatically lower in the last seven to 10 years than most growers have experienced. Uh, the chicken's coming home to roost, so to speak. Thank you to Ray DeBanco, Warren Ward, and Dan Orchard. Thanks, guys. See you All later. Right, take care. Hey, yep, bye. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. For lots more on phosphorus management in canola, go to canolawatch.org. If you're interested in testing phosphorus rates, look for the article, How to Set Up Check Strips, at the site. This has been a Canola Watch podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jay Wetter. Canola Watch is an agronomy service provided by the Canola Council of Canada and funded in part by grower levy contributions to the provincial canola organizations.